Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, mixed reactions to an East Falmouth syringe exchange program. New mothers are getting support from New Hampshire businesses. And Rhode Island revisits a plan to pay people to move there. It's our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, it's the biggest book of 2018, written by the woman who topped the list for the most admired women of 2018. Becoming is Michelle Obama's first book, her story chronicling her life from her Chicago childhood up through her days as First Lady and beyond. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, which airs daily on WNHN-FM 94.7. Welcome back, Arnie. Fasten your seatbelts. It's 2019, finally. <laughs> yes. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> Joining me from Hippo Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Phil. Hi, Callie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And joining me from the New Bedford Standard Times, Paul Pronovo, executive editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello, Paul. Hello, Kelly. Happy New Year, everybody. I know. Well, Paul, I'm starting with you. Um, you've got a, a kind of a interesting solution, potentially, for an old problem down in East Falmouth, a needle exchange program. And some, some people may harken back to uh, the 80s and the 90s when this was first introduced. And there seems to be some support, but also some opposition to it. Talk about it, if you would. Yeah, it's an interesting program, and uh, it's being proposed by the Aid Support Group of Cape Cod. And they are targeting Falmouth because, quite honestly, it's one of, unfortunately, the hotbeds of uh, the heroin epidemic uh, that's gripping New England and, and really the nation. Uh, and, and Cape and Cod specifically, really and certainly heavily. Cape Cod, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, in, in fact, they have a similar program, which which we can get into a little bit later, um, in Hyannis that's, that's gone on since 2009. They're looking to open this facility now in Falmouth. Uh, it's it's in a commercially zoned area, but it happens to be next to a church and also some neighborhoods. And so, as you said, um, while there is support for this program and and as done well in, in other areas, uh, there is opposition. And I think a lot of the opposition revolves around the fact that people were. Uh, quite honestly, surprised that this proposal came up. It was, uh, I think a lot of people first read about it in early December in one of our headlines um, when the Board of Health uh, in Falmouth s s gave the green light to this uh, idea. Uh, and that's when neighbors were reading about it. That's when uh, the, the pastor of the church was reading about it. That's when the local Boy Scout and Girl Scout leaders were reading about it. They, they do programs at the church. And they... Uh, 
said, well, we, this is the first we're hearing of it. Why? And we want to speak out about it. So in, in that kind of way, you, you are, you're always going to get, I think, some opposition. But, but again, you've had a lot of support as well. And the folks from the Aid Supports Group uh, met with uh, the town selectmen recently and, and said to folks, look, this is not just people coming in and, and shooting up, uh, you know, carte blanche. These are people who are coming in. They're getting counseling. They're also offering screenings for hepatitis, HIV, other sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, so it's a, it's a holistic approach. And as you said, Kelly, this has been ongoing since the 80s. Uh, so they're hoping to uh, push through some of that resistance and, and get, get acceptance. But here's the, the, the headline. It should be. Um, they really don't need acceptance. Uh, this mm. has been tested in court already. Uh, the, the program in Hyannis uh, was challenged and went to the state's highest court. Uh, and it was upheld that a, a private social service agency can go ahead and have a facility like this. Um, so I think that's why probably the aid support group didn't feel they needed to jump through a thousand hoops in Falmouth and just move forward with the program. And I think what we've seen, Philip, is that um, once these programs are on the ground and people see the good, let me note that, uh, as your piece does, uh, Paul, there's been a decrease in over overdose deaths across the Cape, and that's been clearly associated with these syringe programs. So, Philip, um, in Rhode Island and every place else um, where people are struggling around this issue, this has this is a proven methodology. Yeah, and I, I don't want to uh, suggest that the people in the community shouldn't be heard and that this shouldn't pass through the proper procedure to get this place open. But um, I am wary of any time I hear communities responding with fear and stigma to a situation like this. And while I'm not a medical expert, anybody with uh, uh, an Internet connection can go to the CDC website and look up these what are called syringe services programs, SSPs. And you'll find things, again, from the Centers for Disease Control that say, Persons who inject drugs can substantially reduce their risk of getting and transmitting HIV, viral hepatitis, and other blood-borne infections by using a sterile needle and syringe for every injection. And there's also an infographic from the CDC which says in big, bold letters, uh, SSPs, that's syringe services programs, don't increase drug use or crime. They also reduce drug use. They reduce overdose deaths. They save everybody money by preventing infections. Um, So as you say, Callie, um, when you get past the stigma and maybe the anger about this being a surprise, um, uh, needle exchange programs like this are proven to be, you know, a good thing for public health. And Arnie, I just wanted to to help yeah. you uh, work with me around um, making it clear that this is not what's called a safe injection site. One of those is actually being considered here in Boston, and that's where people who are using drugs and trying to get off. Um, this, again, is a proven methodology in Europe, but not so much in the United States, and it's being considered in various cities, including Boston, can come into a site and under the supervision of nurses and doctors and other trained professionals uh, can safely, safely inject. inject. But right. this is not that, just so we just right. be clear with people. That's not what this is. This is so, the, the, the but, traditional syringe exchange. So, so, Kelly, I wrote three things down, fear of change, good neighbors, and why this location, Paul. So the good neighbors is actually goes both ways. 
you want people to be good neighbors because this is a challenge for the Cape. It's a challenge for the country, and we have to start dealing with it. And the fact that it gives – it's more than just a place to dispense with your syringe. You get all these other services, which are so important because they're all connected to addiction. So I think it's really looking at the gestalt. But you want to be a good neighbor both ways. So the people that are putting this uh, facility in need to sort of hold people's hands because you hear the same reaction to when Hyannis uh, instituted their, need, their needle exchange program, exactly the same response. And yet we've seen after a couple of years that it turned out that a lot of that stuff uh, was not necessarily warranted. I guess I have a question, though. Why this location? And that is an important question. I understand it's commercial. I know they can probably locate anywhere within a commercial district. But why was this particular location beneficial? Was it on a public transportation route? Was it because they saw it was accessed maybe closer to a hospital or some facility? Again, location matters. And it's not like I don't want it to be next to a church. But I'm kind of curious, why did they choose this particular location? Yeah, and, and the specific location, I, I can't answer that. Uh, okay. gen generally speaking, though, it, it's located in kind of, I guess, what you'd consider a, a donut hole of treatment options. Uh, okay. Falmouth is, while part gotcha. of the Cape, very isolated from other places. If you're if you're in the greater Falmouth area, you're not coming to Hyannis, simply right. put. You, you, you're there. And it's almost, right. it's not an island, but it almost feels like an island to folks down in that area. So they want it to be somewhere... Uh, they wanted to put a bullseye in the donut hole, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so this yeah. was a location that was available, I, I would expect, um, affordable and, uh, mm -hmm. and strategic in, in terms of where it is in, in the general area of Falmouth. It's, 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 it's pretty central to that community. So I think they tried okay. to hit, hit a dot in the middle. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to move on. Um, we'll keep an eye on that. And uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more because the Cape really has been struggling with these issues. Um, Everywhere, people are excited about, or perhaps not, but any, anyway, interested in all the changes taking place at the House of Representatives and what that meant. But there are some firsts and some unusual uh, other um, the races that turned into candidates, that turned into people being elected in our region. And one of them is the governor of Maine. Um, so yesterday, uh, Janet Mills uh, had her swearing-in ceremony, uh, or Wednesday, I'm sorry, Wednesday of this week, she, w the past week, she had the, her swearing-in ceremony. And she's the first woman to hold the position. Let's take a listen. I, Janet Trafton Mills, do swear, do swear, that I will faithfully discharge, that I will faithfully discharge, to the best of my abilities. To the best of my abilities. The duties incumbent on me as governor of the state of Maine. The duties incumbent on me as governor of the state of Maine. Well, Arnie, that's a huge difference from um, the guy that she replaced, Paul LePage, uh, for one thing. And, uh, and, and she also, again, is the first woman to hold this position. It is so exciting. And she was just, I mean, the, she was so happy. And the people out there were so happy. I mean, she's been around politics for a long time, so she's not a newbie in the political arena. She was the attorney general. But Governor LePage was kind of Trump-ish in every way, shape, or form. And uh, he spent most of his time being offended. He also was, remember, he, got, he only got like 37 percent of the vote because he was always running in three three-way races. So he didn't necessarily have a majority of people that supported him. He did everything from trying to, you know, 
know, stop the expansion of Medicaid. He managed to offend every black in Maine. I mean, it was the, the man was just he was hostile to everything. So there are two vignettes that I want to share from her speech yesterday that really sort of tell you it's a new day in Maine. And one of the first things she announced was she's going to put solar panels on the governor's mansion. Oh, my God. I wanted to call Jimmy Carter <laughs> and say, remember those solar panels on the White House? Yep. When I flick it on, I want you to hold my hand because we're going to do this together. So that was one thing that just sort of told you a lot about her understanding of climate change. Some of her appointments to commissions are remarkable people with an incredible resume. Lots of women, by the way. And the other thing she did, which also I think speaks volumes about how she views this and how she really wants to turn the page for Maine, is that uh, Governor LePage had put at the entrance from New Hampshire into um, Maine the following sign, open for business, okay? And what does she want to write? She wants to put a sign up that says, welcome home. Mm. And I, I, I have to tell you that you want a business that's also a home. You want families to feel like they're at home. You want people to feel like they're embraced. And that is an embrace. And so this is a woman that's been around politics for a long time. Her family has as well. So she's she's not a newbie here. She understands the heavy lift. She knows she's going to do things that will offend some people. But at the same time, she also saw all the damage that LePage did. And Maine is a struggling state. It's a poor state. It's a tiny state. And they really need to find ways to work together. And I see her seeing her role as being kind of Velcro. Hmm. And I I don't know how often you hear in a governor's speech the word love, but she used it. And I think we need that, especially in the era we're living in right now, where I feel like democracy and politics is such an unlovable place. Yeah, for sure. She was clearly wonderful. Well, we'll be hearing more from her, and um, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, moving on, I want to go to you, Philip Isle, because uh, in Rhode Island, there's a councilwoman who is also a hotel housekeeper. You really can't get more under the radar than that, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Um, tell us about Carmen Castillo. Um, and then I'm going to play a clip of the, from her. Yeah, so Carmen Castillo has been a housekeeper at a Providence hotel for over 20 years. And uh, since 2012, she's also been a councilwoman on the Providence City Council. Um, and this year in 2019 uh, will be the long-awaited, at least for me, uh, release of a documentary that I remember hearing about when I was at the Providence Phoenix. It was being filmed from 2011 to 2014, um, documenting her life, her dual life as a housekeeper and councilwoman. It's called Councilwoman, um, and I understand it will be released at some film festivals and then a broader release later this year, and I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, that film and kind of her interesting role caught the attention of NBC, uh, which uh, published a national article recently headlined, uh, Councilwoman and Hotel Housekeeper, Latina Lawmaker Redefines Public Service. What caught my eye um, in that article was a few statistics and a quote, which I'll just quickly read. It said, Rhode Island is home to 148,000 Hispanics, making up 14% of the state's population. However, in January, USA Today, this is last year, reported that Rhode Island ranked 10th on a list of the worst states for Hispanics. Hmm. Income inequality between Hispanic and white workers is larger than almost any other state. And a 2017 report by the Casey Foundation ranked Rhode Island's Latino children last in the nation based on the 12 areas of predictive success. So that's some interesting context about Rhode Island. And um, 
I just want to highlight also a quote from that article from a Duke professor that I found interesting. And they said, manual clerical and service jobs make up a little over half of our labor force. And working people are still the backbone of our economy. But working class people almost never go on to become politicians. Just something to think about. I know. Well, let's take a listen from Carmen Castillo, who tells NBC Latino why she got into politics. So, Ms. Castillo, uh, can you tell us why did you get involved in politics? Because um, in this uh, part of the city, a lot of poor people running for a position, and I want to help. They can be in place. And I want to emphasize, this is a woman who cleans hotel rooms for a living. And she, and she properly is rather insulted that people think that she can't do that and also be a, an active member of a governing body because, hey, she knows the issues literally from the ground up. I, I think it's pretty interesting. My <laughs> yeah, I, and uh, I wanted... Go ahead, Paul. What? I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, here we are on, on basically in the shadow of uh, having the most diverse House class uh, in Congress uh, sworn in, and and so many barriers are being broken these days, which is which is heartening. Uh, the times are changing, and I think the reflection of our country is being uh, reflected better uh, in our representation. But what's so interesting about this story is the fact what we're talking about. It's it's not just. Um, who she is, it's what she does. And the fact that she is a so-called working-class person, I'm sure an incredibly difficult job, and yet still essentially moonlights as a politician, I think is an incredible credit to her and really hopefully is inspiring to others because, of course, folks who have to work hard and, and can't just take time off and have big gobs of money where they can run for office for six months, 12 months at a time, uh, aren't going for these jobs because guess what? They have to stay employed. They have to make ends meet. They have to pay the bills every single time. Any blip on the radar for them is going to be difficult. So they don't have the luxury to run for office unless you do what she's doing, which is taking taking basically her f so-called free time, the hours of 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., and uh, running for office. So uh, it's incredibly difficult, but it's inspiring to see. Wow. And uh, and also, she does not have control of her schedule, by the way, <laughs> if you're a hotel housekeeper. Right. You know, you'd, she'd have to negotiate that. So um, I think she'd probably have some pretty good negotiating skills for the city council, <laughs> given <laughs> that. And I'm just saying, just looking at that um, from the outside. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Arnie Arneson of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, Philippile freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island, and Paul Pronovo, executive editor of the Cape Cod Times. We're discussing regional news from the Cape, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Um, back to you, Arnie, in New Hampshire. I'm very interested in these grants that New Hampshire businesses have gotten to provide support for new mothers. This is an issue for a lot of new mothers in the workplace, is finding a place where they can do their mothering thing uh, with their uh, practical newborns and at right. the same time do the job. Well, there's a couple of things. I want to also uh, put something down on the table as well. I have in front of me an article from early December. Here is the title of the article. Breastfeeding lawsuit by fired DHHS worker headed for trial. A former employee of the Department of Health and Human Services who said she was fired for wanting to breastfeed her newborn at work will finally get her day in court after a six-year legal battle. So I want to put that out there, and then I'm going to read you again the headline from this other story, Grants Help New Hampshire Businesses Provide Support for New Mothers. So here's the issue. As a woman who breastfed at work in, 19, in the 1980s, who breastfed on the floor of the New Hampshire 
legislature who understood that it was impossible to find infant care, who also understood that you wanted to make sure that your child had access to all the health benefits of breastfeeding. Uh, it's about time. And uh, as well, I, I pointed out that the state is actually being sued about this issue. What is so exciting about these businesses, they're being given money, not so that people can actually sort of breastfeed their child on campus, but that they can do the things that they need to do to pump, to store their, uh, their breast milk, make it so that they don't have to go into the bathroom to do it. There's a special refrigerator. There's a special room. One of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of businesses beginning to really want to embrace this is that we have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the United States. Every able-bodied person who can work, you want to work. You also then need to be convenient for them to work. And if you are a new mother and you want to breastfeed beyond the first six weeks or 12 weeks, then guess what? You want to return to work, but they have to accommodate that idea. And that's really what they're doing. So now they're expanding the grants. They're giving it to more uh, small businesses so they can figure out how to make an adjustment for breastfeeding mothers. And they've actually done studies that show that you have higher retention of those women when they know they can do this. You know, welcome to the world. You know, yeah, this is exactly. so exciting. And I want to just sort of also sort of touch on what happened just this week with all these new people being sworn in. I want to remind everyone that there are, what is it, 40 now new women in Congress. And I'm going to tell you right now, you know what one of the first things you're going to have to do? Build a new bathroom. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, this is that's this I, I, it's absolutely true. So this is the changing face of work. Work is now reflecting what we actually live on a daily basis. Congress is reflecting actually who we are. That woman who uh, works during the day and you know t washes sheets and changes changes bathrooms and does all those things, that is also a reflection of what we need in our politics because she doesn't just bring her challenge of her job. She brings that experience as they write the legislation and they write the policies because she knows what backbreaking work is. Too many people that serve in politics have no idea. Well, just to, to be clear, the Center for Disease Control is offering these grants, and uh, New Hampshire businesses are taking them up on it. They're grants of $5,000 to 10 work sites uh, to help them it's develop small. policies. Yeah, but still, you know, with so the breast pumps and the educational materials and technical support. And this is the kind of thing that will spread as people can see that it, it definitely works. So moving on, there are a cache of stories that you all have uh, presented that have to do with sexual harassment, which reminds me uh, that the Me Too movement, um, I don't care what anybody says, has definitely made an impact because we're talking about these issues more frankly. Let me start with you, Paul Pronovo, because next week the actor Kevin Spacey is due to be in Nantucket courtroom. He's accused of accosting former... Channel 5 anchor, Channel 5 Boston anchor, Heather Unruh's son. Um, he was 18. There's some question about whether he's of age or not, but um, um, he will now have to come back to court. He had said he was not going to show up. The judge said, no, you have to be here. So he will appear in court to address those charges. But after the charges were made, uh, he released this very odd tape in the character that he uh, played on House of Cards. Let's take a listen. They're just dying to have me declare that everything said is true and that I got what I deserved. Wouldn't that be easy if it was all so simple? Only you and I both know it's never that simple, not in politics and not in life. But you wouldn't believe the worst without evidence, would you? You wouldn't rush to judgments without facts, would you? Did you? So that's Kevin Spacey, and, and he's accused of accusing, of accosting Kev, uh, Heather Unruh's son, who was, um, 
I don't even know if he was of age, but that's to be disputed as well. So she has been uh, quite forward out in public talking about this, and he has to come to court in Nantucket this week. Well, well what's interesting about that, uh, frankly, bizarro uh, tape that uh, uh, Mr. Spacey put out on Christmas Eve is, uh, well, people are going to get the facts uh, because he is actually going to court to face a uh, charge of indecent assault and battery. Um, this goes back, of course, to, uh, and I think you're right, Kelly, I think the Me Too movement ha- uh, led to a number of people being identified as uh, or being accused uh, of harassment. Um, Kevin Spacey was among them back in 2017. There were several uh, accusations that had been made, but as far as I know, only one place where charges were actually filed, and that was on Nantucket, uh, where he apparently uh, had a, a encounter with Heather Unruh's uh, teenage son at a, a, a club on the island. Um, the accusation is that they uh, spoke for a while, that he bought uh, the teenager uh, some drinks and invited him back to his place. Uh, and so we'll see, ultimately, what what transpired. Spacey obviously denies these charges, plans to uh, plead not guilty, um, but the prosecution believes that they have enough evidence to move forward with, uh, with, the, with this case. So it, it was interesting. And in the background, of course, always uh, with celebrities is will they or won't they appear? And, and of course, Nantucket is a small island, smaller still at this time of the year, practically abandoned, it seems like. And yet uh, here comes this famous L.A. actor who's going to appear in a very small courtroom next week. Uh, he didn't want to do that. Uh, they tried to, he tried to uh, get basically the arraignment to go forward without him appearing uh, to make his plea in person. Uh, but uh, fortunately, the judge said no, like everybody else, you're going to come, you're going to speak, and we're going to move forward with this case. Well, I don't want. I just want to keep moving because there's a, a number of stories here that you each have put forward. Um, to you, Philip Isle, um, there yeah. has been a move by the Rhode Island's House Speaker to create an office to investigate allegations of sexual harassment. All of this stuff is connected about bringing these issues to light. So Kevin Spacey's case has uh, come to light because. Uh, the mother of the of the allegedly accosted son, her son, um, she wants to make sure that people understand, you know, what's happened, what has happened, and the danger of of uh, of, of of these kinds of actions. And here is the Rhode Island House Speaker saying we've got to address it too, uh, in the state legislature. Yeah. So a bit of context. Um, Late last year, the Rhode Island House of Representatives was, I think it's fair to say, rocked by a story uh, where a young female representative apparently had been complaining about sexual harassment by a powerful Democratic state rep who was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee for years. And her complaints and allegations had gone unheeded. Um, that uh, House Judiciary Chair, former House Judiciary Chair, lost his election, so he will not be back in this new legislative session that just started. But the Speaker of the House, Nicholas Mattiello, did announce, as you said, Kelly, that he plans to create an office to investigate allegations of sexual harassment in the state legislature. He told WPRO that it's, quote, a little bit of a waste of resources to hire an investigator when there are, quote, very few problems, um, but everyone should be protected as they can be, um, and he says he won't tolerate harassment. Now, pardon me if I take this with a fairly significant grain of salt, because when those allegations came out uh, last year, the speaker put out a statement saying, 
uh, this is clearly another attempt by the ultra progressives to impact this election cycle, which is a statement I won't forget anytime soon. And I think everybody should know when he's out here talking about creating an office to investigate sexual harassment. And I should also quote State Senator Sam Bell, who is a Democrat recently elected, who questioned whether the speaker should have the power to appoint the individual who will investigate harassment, as well as whether the same person would have authority over the Senate. Yeah, that's a question. Um, so yes, there are some measures being taken, um, but I think um, some fuller context is appropriate and also some good questions um, should continue to be asked. Well, fair point. Uh, in New Hampshire, Arnie, the House voted 284 to 92 to require every lawmaker to undergo sexual harassment awareness training. I mean, that's a huge step, too. It's again, it's a reflection. It's a reflection of me, too. All these things are coming to the front for we're all realizing that we probably need some sensitivity training, despite the fact that they think they need no training. You know, I would never do it. Well, then what's the problem with taking a course about it? Since it's expected in the private workplace, why not have it in the public workplace as well? And of course, we all saw the same sort of allegations with Bernie Sanders campaign, where two dozen staffers actually who worked on Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign have alleged that there were some sexual misconduct as well. So we're we're seeing it everywhere. I think you're realizing that we have to sort of set the stage, set the standard, let people know what the vehicle is for them to be, come forward and, and sort of talk about it. And I also think it's important that if we have these open public discussions, that one, uh, maybe we can begin to prevent the behavior, but maybe we can also recognize that if the behavior does happen, you know what to do and how to do it. That has been the biggest problem for so many women is that's why they never came forward, because they were not only in, discouraged from coming forward, they didn't even know where to go. And now I think you're seeing that both at the legislative level. You're seeing that within campaigns. And Bernie has said, look, in my 2018 reelect, we immediately established that whatever happens going forward, that will happen as well. He kind of used the excuse that, you know, the, the campaign was sort of outside of his control. Sorry, you're the boss. Well, that's absolutely right. And I, it, whether the, any of these moves are disingenuous or not, I think we cannot forget that this really came about from public pressure to make yes. people look at it um, and in whatever variations they do. And with regard to what may or may not happen um, in uh, Rhode Island, uh, Philip, I think it's going to be incumbent upon that same public to say, no, you, you don't have the authority to appoint the person that's going to invest, lead the, the uh, quote unquote office, uh, because that clearly is a conflict of interest. So more to come. We'll, we'll circle back to all of these things, I'm sure, in the next few months. Um, back to you, Philip. We talked about this uh, last year early on, I think, when uh, Rhode Island, uh, a Pawtucket lawmaker, wanted to uh, put forth a bill, tried to put forth a bill to pay people to move to Rhode Island, offering $10,000 in tax credits, incentive payments to middle-class people willing to move to Rhode Island. We, you know, there was a little humor about it, and some people noticed it was a little class. Uh, based because you had to have a certain amount of money. But the very real problem is if Rhode Island doesn't maintain its um, population, they're going to lose a seat. So he's returned to offering this as a proposal, as a very real proposal. Yeah, and, and this is really two stories in one. I mean, it's a story about that proposed legislation to pay people to move here, but it's a story, as you uh, indicate, Callie, about what seems to be a very real eventuality now that Rhode Island is going to lose one of our two seats in the U.S. House of Representatives 
um, when the next census rolls around. Apparently, uh, recently, we're only uh, within about 150 people of losing that seat, and it looks like we're going to cross that threshold in the next few years. And as I Googled before coming on the show today, apparently we will join seven other states that currently only have one representative, including Alaska, Delaware, and Montana. So that looks to be Rhode Island's political future as a state with one uh, congressperson. But to try to avert that, this um, state representative, Carlos Tabone, has proposed this um, legislation to pay people, um, essentially, to move here. Um, And from the Providence Journal, as originally proposed, people currently living in any state in the country would be eligible for the tax credit as long as they bring their family of at least three and have a household income that exceeds $100,000 per year. As you said, there's some class implications there. I kind of have two thoughts about this, um, conflicting thoughts. One is, it seems to me, uh, what you should be doing as a legislature is creating policies that make people want to come here organically, right? So you don't have to just uh, fork over cash. And it seems to be kind of an admission of failure uh, or lack of an imagination to just say, we're going to pay you to come here. On the other hand, we're already doing that on such a bigger level um, with companies like GE and Amazon and throwing millions, if not billions of dollars at them. So part of me thinks, well, maybe we should pay people directly like this anyway, instead of it going to the GEs and the Amazons of the world. I don't know. And I will keep you guys posted. I don't know if this legislation will find any traction this time around in 2019, but I'll be keeping an eye on it. Well, I should point out that there are many other cities and towns uh toward the Midwest, mostly, that are offering cold, hard cash for people to move there. And it's working, by the way, mm-hmm. particularly Is with it? regard to millennials, because they're trying to get rid of those loans and have a, at least a shot at owning a house and um, putting down some roots. And the towns are happy to have that talent. So one one quick note. Um, apparently, Tabone, uh, the, the uh, legislator who has proposed this, uh, has estimated the state would be safe in terms of retaining its congressperson if we can add 30,000 new residents, and he's capped his program at that. And that's a lot of people. I mean, you could attract some people, but 30,000 is a lot. Well, um, we'll see what happens there, and uh, I might grab about three kids and see. Take a look at Rhode Island. That's kind of sounding good right now. I'll throw a party for you, Callie, when you move here. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all for joining me today. Arnie Arneson is host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, which airs daily on WNHN-FM 94.7. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. And Paul Pronovo is the executive editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, former First Lady Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, has been at the top of the New York Times bestseller list since it debuted in November of last year. Her candid personal recounting of her story has impressed millions of fans who have read the book and flocked to 30,000-seat stadiums to hear her speak. Why has her story resonated with so many? We asked two avid readers to help us explore that question in a discussion of her best-selling memoir. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. 
She grew up in one of Chicago's working-class neighborhoods, living nearby grandparents, aunts, and uncles, who were an integral part of her growing up years. Former First Lady Michelle Obama remembers wondering why adults always ask kids what they wanted to be. Later in her life, she says, she realized that becoming who you are really meant to be is never, is a never, let's try that again. Later in her life, she says, she realized that becoming who you are really meant to be is a never-ending journey. Her new book, Becoming, invites readers in to experience the pivotal moments of her journey. Becoming is an Oprah pick, a New York Times bestseller, and the hottest ticket on the book tour circuit. It's also our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Joining me to discuss Becoming, two women for whom reading is an essential part of their lives. Janet Axelrod has chaired the Cambridge Public Library Board of Trustees for more than 20 years and is a member of the Cambridge Public Library Foundation. When she's not reading, you might find her practicing with her drumming group, Shiboom. Welcome, Janet. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Great to be here. <laughs> Betty Freeman is the former assistant dean for academic and student affairs at Northeastern Law School, now happily retired and able to indulge her reading habit. She is a member of the 30-year-old Literary Sisters Book Club, the second oldest black women's book club in greater Boston. Hello, Betty. It's a pleasure to be here, Callie. Thank I'm, you. I'm delighted to have both of you, and I should say I know both of you <laughs> in past <laughs> lives and now. Uh, Literary Sisters is also my personal book club. And I wanted to really have people who uh, would dive into this book and and just get to the the essence of it. So just first off, real quickly, what did you like about it, Janet? How did it strike you? Or did you like it? Oh, I loved it. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful read. And, you know, the main thing that I loved about it was the very many times she talked about coming into her own power and learning how to be a powerful person and how to adjust the public gaze to follow her own agenda. You know, that people who, who begin with, she began with getting, you know, talked to about how her image should change and she should do this this way. She's an angry black woman, blah, blah, blah. And she, she realizes, she grows and realizes, I can manipulate this for my own purposes. And she talks a lot about that in the book. And it's very exciting to read. All right, Betty, for you. For me, I think it's such a well-written book. I think she's a incredible storyteller. I mean, the story is rendered beautifully. Uh, and there are three areas that really resonated with me. Of course, the experience of being a black woman um, and always questioning whether you're enough mm. and whether you've done enough. Um, I also relate it to being a mother, wife, and worker and the whole life balance issue. Um, and where do you find time for self-care and self-promotion? Uh, and finally, just learning about the workings of politics. I actually come from a political family on a smaller scale, so had some notion, but the, the idea of the enormity of it all uh, I, I found truly interesting. I should say that both of you have activism in your background, so that you know, this part of the book and her journey certainly would be very relatable to you. Absolutely. Um, what do you? Why do you think it has resonated across the board? I mean, we're we're we have all very specific reasons why we're finding it um, relatable. But I mean, there are people in stadiums going to hear her thirty thousand at a at a time. I know. What, what do you Paying think? Paying a is? lot of money. I mean, yes, exactly. <laughs> what about this book? Is I mean, I think she's a little startled by it too. That has really grabbed people. I think it's her. You know, mm -hmm. she is so relatable. I mean, people just love her. She's the most 
I mean, there was a recent uh, poll that said she's the most popular person in America or something. Most you know, admired woman. Most yes. admired woman, yes. you know, yes. and, and yeah. Barack's the most admired man. I mean, it, this is not an accident. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think she comes from a regular background, and she's a, sort of a poster child for how you can make your life matter, no matter who you are, mm-hmm. um, which is part of what I like about it and part of what I don't like about it, because... For me, it seems a little bit like, um, you know, yeah, if you work hard and, mm-hmm. and do the right things, you'll you'll get there. And that's just a myth in mm-hmm. so many ways to me. So, mm-hmm. but, and, and yet, you know, she did. She does show that. That does happen in America. It's not normal, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Betty? Yeah, I, you know, I think you're right. It has to do with her and, and that they're an extraordinary couple. I mean, together, they have made an incredible mark on history and we're in a time right now where things are just not great and you look back at what we had and I think people are also missing that for sure um and having her write her right because we've read Barack's writings her right about the experience is really I think very special and when you talk about being empowered I think this book definitely empowers women um no matter what race, but particularly African-American. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found it, of course, the, the writing is just incredible. Um, I read the preface and was so blown away, I had to put it down and, you know, walk around. <laughs> <laughs> the preface, she hadn't even done anything. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, Everything. I mean, it is really, really just so touching in uh, in all these small moments. Um, and certainly the first part of the book where she's unfolding her growing up years, her family life, all of that. And by the way, we should mention that the book is divided into sections, become Becoming me, becoming us, meaning she and, and Barack, um, and then becoming, mm-hmm. um, which she defines as an as a never-ending process. And I just thought that first part had an extra layer and complexity and richness, um, particularly for some of the things that she she lifted up. And Janet, I was talking to you before we got started about this passage uh, early on uh, when her mom moved her from a school. Remember what you've just said? She was a regular kid, a school that looked like it was about to uh, go down to another school that was going to give her a better opportunity. And she starts realizing what this meant. Would you just read that passage? Sure. Uh, Her mom has moved her out of that school. And and she says... um, I didn't stop to ask myself then what would happen to all the kids who had been left in the basement with the teacher who couldn't teach. Now that I'm an adult, I realize that kids know at a very young age when they're being devalued, when adults aren't invested enough to help them learn. Their anger over it can manifest itself as unruliness. It's hardly their fault. They aren't bad kids. They're just trying to survive bad circumstances. At the time, though, I was just happy to have escaped, but I'd learned many years later that my mother, who was by nature wry and quiet, but generally also the most forthright person in any room, I just love her mother, mm-hmm. made a point of seeking out the second grade teacher and telling her as kindly mm-hmm. as possible that she had no business teaching mm-hmm. and she should be working in a drugstore cashier <laughs> instead. Yeah, I do love her mother, too. I love, I love her mom. I love oh, her mother. Is, I mean, if everybody was raised by Thank you. that lady, the world would be a very different place. I yes. know, that's, that's yes. 
absolutely true. Betty, is there something like that 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 read, that just went right through me when she when I read those words? I thought, oh my god. Um, and it also explained to me if you looked forward why she was so interested. I was in, about uh, to say it brings girls. her 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 efforts mm-hmm. full circle. Mm-hmm. I mean, she never ever once she decided I'm no longer going to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do something that means something to me and it's purposeful. She really did focus a lot on. Uh, and particularly as the First Lady, children, um, their health, uh, their education, and their safety. I mean, she just—her efforts when, you know— this part of the book, I have to say, I was so excited by the first part. Mm. This began to feel a little bit like a laundry list, mm. but it was very informative about how much she had accomplished because I didn't know the depth and the, the width, width of it all. Mm. Yes. Um, if you're just joining me, you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My guests are Janet Axelrod and Betty Freeman. You just heard her. Both avid readers. And we're discussing Becoming, Michelle Obama's new blockbuster book. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Um, I have to say, I was really uh, pleased with her candid description of the impact of racial limitations yeah. and racist impact. Yeah. Um, she's very... Uh, particularly in the front part of the book in discussing yes. her her uh, relatives and their disappointments and how that was very much built into the some of the racial racist rather um, um, uh, really fabric of the of the country and mm-hmm. and how they dealt with it mm-hmm. H- how did you all respond to how she described that well it just felt so true um, I I went and actually picked up uh, the quote from Malcolm X about black women in particular, and that one was, it, it seems at times to be a bit overdramatic perhaps, but it's still true that black women were so devalued. Um, but in terms of the fact that she had this wonderful family that really embraced and supported her, even though many of them had had so many disappointments, they put, they invested everything into these young people, and that to me is extraordinary. But it's also not uncommon. Mm-hmm. There are a number of families out there doing the same things in similar circumstances, and as she's hoping, will be successful in their own right. That well, is one of the <laughs> things I loved about her mother. When when people say to her mother, "Oh, how wonderful your children are! They're so terrific," she yeah. says, "You know, they're not that special. There are plenty of kids on the south side just like them." Just you like know? Mm-hmm. And I love that about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I just want to say that as a white person to read about this stuff. You know, this is not news to me, but mm-hmm. I know that for a lot of white people, it, it is. really is. Yes, it is. And um, it's it really humanizes her, and it makes the whole struggle around race and color come home to you mm-hmm. in a way that you just may not have had that experience before. Right. So it's very instructive for white people. It's very important. It's an important read for white people. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular space in the book, a place in the book that really excited you the most, or did you just have an overall feeling about it? Um, as I said, I, I, I enjoyed the first parts, probably the mm-hmm. first two parts better, more than I did the last part. Mm-hmm. But um, I, w- I was really impressed with more information about Barack. Oh, yeah. And who yeah. he, you know, again, you've read his books, but there's more about Barack that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, what type of a character and personality he was yeah. and for her to share that perspective yeah um so i enjoyed the first part i think the most the historic part mm-hmm. um and, and 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 you know as you say sort of the struggles of the families uh to make things happen for their children um 
What do I think? Um, you know, I, 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 I think Michelle and Barack are exceptional people, and, and not all of us can be that, mm. um, but they are certainly a, a hope for our future. And they yeah. set a standard exactly. to aspire to. They exceeded as, a standard. You know, one of the things that struck me in the book was um, she talked about the inability to turn the page or to change the channel. You know, when, when we read horrible things in the newspaper, you know, you have this feeling, well, what can I do about this? I can't really affect this, and I'm just going to try and turn the page and forget about it for the moment, you know. and. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're in power and you're an actual person with morals, unlike certain people who are in power now, um, <laughs> you know, you cannot turn the page. You can't turn your gaze away from those, those events because you can do something with them. You are able to exert your power over that situation, and you find that you must. I found that that's a huge responsibility. It is. Um, here's a just one line from the book. I was deeply, delightfully in love with a guy whose forceful intellect and ambition could possibly end up swallowing mine. Yes. 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 What I really appreciated in yes. Becoming Us was her recognizing that um, this guy is a unicorn. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. who am I in the space with him? Mm -hmm. Because you don't run across a unicorn. Mm -hmm. He is totally different from anybody right. I've ever mm -hmm. dated even. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. And trying to figure out do I want to go on this journey with him? Because, as she just said, he could just swallow me up. Right. And, and, and he can't help it. He wasn't right. going to try to do that, you know. And he, he does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the reality yeah. is that she mm -hmm. had her own path, and suddenly she's on another path, <laughs> yeah. you know. And um, there are parts of it she really does not like. No. Yeah. And no. she was honest, yeah. forthright about right. it. I think All that's the other thing that a lot of people have said about how honest she is. Here's a passage she talked about. Um, early on in the campaign tra trail, I'm sure you all remember when she um, got a lot of flack uh, for saying something, and I'm going to play it for you. This is Michelle Obama on the 2008 campaign trail. Let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country, and not just because Barack has done well, but because... I think people are hungry for change. Of course, that was interpreted as being anti-American, oh, unpatriotic, right. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. She was devastated by this, as she said in her book, and was completely blindsided, had no idea that it would be taken that way. But here's the quote that I liked later on as she struggled around, you know, people judging her, having no sense of who she really was. It's remarkable how a stereotype functions as an actual trap. How many angry black women have been caught in the circular logic of that phrase? When you aren't being listened to, why wouldn't you get louder? If you're written off as angry or emotional, doesn't that just cause more of the same? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, she was described as angry black woman, un unpatriotic, Janet. Yeah, that's well, right. that's really, <laughs> you know, that's the way to undermine her power. Yeah. And, yeah. and fortunately, she finds a way around it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She becomes the most beloved woman in America. <laughs> Which is pretty amazing. <laughs> pretty amazing. Now, there is a critique that I've heard uh, beyond what... Uh, what Betty has expressed, which is that toward the back of the book, and Janet, you haven't weighed in on it. Did you feel it was like a laundry list toward the back of the book, like it didn't have as much richness? Well, as it the felt front? a little bit like, um, you know, I just want you to remember everything I've done, y'all. Yeah. Mm. You know, mm. and, and mm. which uh, that's I'm I'm that's justified. I understand that. Yeah, and I agree. It is justified. Yeah. Um, there, the one piece that has come back in other little discussions I've had with people are the passage, which as um, this reporter at the Huff Post wrote. Um, 
really was almost a throwaway about Jeremiah Wright. People mm-hmm. will remember Jeremiah yeah. Wright was the minister of the church that they attended yes. for many, many years. And he got caught up in the unpatriotic, you're a horrible person. Mm-hmm. And they had to distance themselves from him during the 2008 um, campaign. And the writer of this uh, analysis, um, I'm going to find her name in a minute. Oh, Ashen Crawley. She's actually a professor. Um I thought that this had a struck a note that was not authentic in the as it was in the way that she discussed race in the rest of the book. In that, um, she discussed the exchange and what happened with Jeremiah Wright uh, in a way that she, that Ashton Crawley said she conflated um, systemic racism with individual kinds of racism, and 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 it looked it felt very much like it had a lot of hands on it in terms of massaging this as a statement. Mm -hmm. So this is what she said in the book. Um, Barack and I were dismayed to see this, a reflection of the worst and most paranoid parts of the man who'd married us and baptized our children. Both of us had grown up with family members who viewed race through our lens of cranky mistrust. I experienced Dandy's simmering resentment over the decades he'd spent being passed by professionally because of his skin color, as well as Southside's worries about his grandkids weren't safe in white neighborhoods. These were her grandparents. Mm -hmm. Barack, meanwhile, had listened to toot his white grandmother make offhanded ethnic generalizations and even confessed to her black grandson that she sometimes felt afraid when running into a black man on the street. So um, Ashton Crawley says, she goes on to say, it felt as though she were making him a kind of weird guy. And when he, in fact, was a veteran, Mm -hmm. um, had volunteered for the Navy uh, and was bringing up some real Mm -hmm. issues around Mm -hmm. um, racism as a systemic problem in America. You might not like his expression of it, but he wasn't wrong. Mm -hmm. And and this felt like an unnecessary distancing in the book. I wondered how you all felt about it. That's interesting because as you speak now about it, uh, it makes me think that, you know, poor poor Barack and... and, uh, you know, Michelle had to walk this tightrope mm. the entire time around not upsetting people because of their blackness and trying to be neutral and fair at all times. And at times he did a brilliant job of that. But I remember hearing Ta-Nehisi Coates say that he really felt sorry that Barack couldn't be his full self. Mm-hmm. He, fe- he had to be reined mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Um, because of the country, because of the racism in the country, um, that he could not in any way really speak completely the truth. And she did not touch on that. You're, yeah. yeah, she's right. right. I mean, I, when you think about what I've read, nothing was said about how he was, they walked that tightrope. And, and I thought, following up on what Janet had said, this was an opportunity for her to actually finally be able to say something mm-hmm. in this moment mm-hmm. to all this audience that mm-hmm. we know that she's going to hit. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry that she didn't take it on. But it felt to me like some editor said, you know what? Let's Don't not go, go there. there. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, I'm sure she heard that many, yeah, many times. Know and, yeah. you know, I mean, it really is... Vi- for white people, understanding racism is a much more complicated thing than it is for black people. Very and, uh, you know, it, it often gets very personalized mm-hmm. in their minds and in their practice. And um, to explain the sort of overarching nature of this system to people who are not affected by it in that way, it's complicated. It is. And, uh, you know, it sometimes takes a whole book to do that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm thinking I may be putting uh, more on her because I don't feel Barack's going to touch this at all. He's going to go in a whole different direction in his book. And so it was really fell to her yes. to sort of deal with some of this complexity. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and that's a lot. 
and yeah. tell her own story. Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, she she's great, but she's not perfect. I guess. <laughs> I mean, she, even, contrary to popular belief, she <laughs> is right. not a perfect person. And, and, and it was a long book. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. what more could you put in it? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the legacy of this book um, is? And you know, in terms of all of the the multiple audiences that it's in t- that it's touching now. Well, I, I think for some people, it will really be an inspiration. You know, people will say, look at Michelle Obama. She grew up in the south side of Chicago in a warm and embracing family just like mine. You know, and she was able to make, to vault herself into this position of tremendous power. And I mean, she's an extraordinary person. She's really, you know, she's very organized and she's a planner. And, you know, she she's someone who doesn't uh, suffer around. fools <laughs> and doesn't mess around. Yeah. Um but, you know, to be able to point to someone like her and say she did this means in some way that I, you know, as a regular old black woman or a regular old woman or regular old anything mm-hmm. can can have that kind of hope, too. Mm-hmm. So that's one part of her legacy. I think. In fact, um, you know, Janet, you bring up hope. She mentioned that toward that. She really pushed toward that she, at the end of the book. Optimism. So um, the optimism, optimism which yes. is yes. amazing given yes. some of the stuff stories she tells in the book. True. Yes. And she ends on a note of saying, you know, we, we need to come together. I don't think that's phony, but some people may feel like, well, mm-hmm. did she feel like she had to right, sort of right, go there right, right, um, right, toward right. the end? Um, she really talks about letting everybody in to hear them so that we can sort of get out of the mess of of not being able to, to well, to hear each other, right. frankly. Well, yeah. I mean, we're yeah. living in the exact opposite of that yeah, reality, right. and, and she sees that that's a mess. Mm-hmm. And I think she's inspiring. I mean, it's, it has been inspiring watching all of these women, all types of ethnicities, and running and winning elections. Mm. I mean, it just sort of adds to that movement. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, it may not be the end-all, be-all, the, the thing that, turns everything around, but it's certainly because there's a lot of great writing going on by black women Absolutely. Um, that really uh, encourage encourages our voices to be heard. You know, the other thing that I think is part of her legacy is um, sort of explaining and understanding change takes time. Mm. Yes, she did. She yes. said it was slow. You know, it's slow. And, and as impatient as we are and as much as mm-hmm. we want things to change, we just have to keep slogging away every single day and know that even if we don't see it in our lifetime, you know, the arc of justice bends toward freedom. <laughs> and we have to have faith that mm-hmm. that is the case. Well, well, from two avid readers, the true test, would you read it again? And um, is it going to be on your bookshelf in a, as a book that you recommend to others? Oh, sure. Absolutely on the sure. bookshelf to recommend for, to others. Whether I read it again, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that I meant. Would but you I will it, definitely you know? yeah. revisit it, <laughs> yeah. and I will definitely share it with everyone I know. Mm-hmm. I, I, everybody I talk to now, I say I'm reading Michelle Obama's book. Yeah, yeah. You know? Janet, same for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I very rarely read things more than once. I mean, every now and then I have a sort of a James Baldwin moment, and I yes, read, reread read everything. Right. Right. And it's and true. I, it's always good, but. You know, I have my all my little post-its in her book, and I'm going to leave them there, and, and I'm going to go back to those quotes when, when it's relevant, and I'm sure it will be. 
All Absolutely. Right. Well, thank you both for joining me. Thank well, you for having me, Michelle. I'd love to have you. Well, yeah, when you get Michelle, invite us back, will you? Janet Axelrod is chair of the Cambridge Public Library Board of Trustees and a member of the Cambridge Public Library Foundation. Betty Freeman is a former assistant dean at Northeastern Law School and a member of the Literary Sisters Book Club of Greater Boston. They joined me to discuss Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Becoming is available on audio and in bookstores and online now. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.